Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, your pew Bibles, page 484. After these things, and you'll find out what that means in the sermon, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officials in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. And Romans chapter 11, and just the first part of verse 1. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, really deal with the whole issue of, well, what about Israel? And Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 1, I ask them, has God rejected his people? By no means. The grass withers and the flowers do fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. Our wonderful God, we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love to confess you as the sovereign. You can do all things. No purpose of yours will be thwarted. And we learn that in the book of Esther as we do in the whole Bible. And now, our Lord, give us minds to understand this portion of Scripture as we begin to see how you deal with your people in a pagan land, and as we learn lessons about also being citizens of this world as well as of the world to come. We pray in the name of our first King, the Lord Jesus Christ, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You'll want to turn to page 10. Well, this is a juggling act because you also want to have your Bibles open to uh, page 484, Esther chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11. just take a moment at the beginning uh, to, to give a little lesson. I, I hate to be so pedantic, but, but a little lesson about, about God's dealings with his people. Um, God, God does deal with his people individually, uh, the Old Testament. And, and notice the way this works. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You have King Saul. And you have King David. So the Lord deals with people individually. And in the New Testament, Jesus deals with the twelve. And even among the twelve, you, you have a Judas. And then you have uh, a Saul who becomes Paul, who works with a Timothy, individual working. And then you have, even within the church, Alexander the coppersmith, who has done me much harm. So you have, the, you have that clear individual emphasis. And when we're talking about salvation... That's what we're talking about. Nobody gets to heaven on the coattails of mom and dad or grandma or grandpa individually with one leg of repentance turning from sin and one leg of faith turning unto Christ. We come to the Lord Jesus. That's a very individual way God deals with his people. And as Americans, we particularly tend to think like that. Now, it's interesting, if you go to other countries where they tend to think more in terms of the tribe or the state or the nation, they will think more of the corporate way God deals with his people. So, in the Old Testament, we have Israel, you have Judah, you have two of the areas of Israel as a divided kingdom. Or, or you have Jacob, which is not just the patriarch Jacob, it's a term for all of the Lord's people, or Jerusalem which deals with the capital, which deals with where God's people have their capital. And so you have a lot, of those, a lot of those corporate references, above all Israel in the Old Testament. And it's the same in the New. You have the church, you have the saints, you have the body. Yet the church is a virgin together. It's called a, a virgin that's prepared for Christ. And that's very significant for what we look at today. And, and that's because... As we, we you got to put it technically, God works by way of covenant. He has he has an external way he deals with people. You're baptized, you're part of the church, you're part of a particular church, and those churches are part of what we call the church Catholic or the church universal. That that's a, that's an external aspect of the covenant, and then within that you have the Lord dealing with with His own elect ones. Okay, now that comes into play today as we come to Esther, because now God's not just dealing with Esther and Mordecai. He's dealing with the Jews. He's dealing with the Jews who are in the land. And God has not forgotten his people. And uh, in back of all of these things, remember God is behind the scenes. Okay. Now, with that in mind, as you come, it's interesting the way the text begins as you look at chapter 2 and verse 1. After these 
things. And, and it, it, we're going to give you more than the things referred to here. But let's keep this situation in mind with the Jews. Okay, and Let's do it as if there's a, a newspaper. We'll call it the Ancient Near Eastern Times. How's that? And so the Ancient Near Eastern Times, and you've got headlines. So you have a headline in, AD, in B.C. before Christ, 722. Here's the big headline. Assyria wipes out Israel. Assyria invades and takes over the northern kingdom of the land of the Jews and takes many into captivity. That's the headline in the ancient Near Eastern times in B.C., before Christ, 722. Now, you go to B.C., 586, 586 years before the birth of Christ, and the headline in the ancient Near Eastern times, Babylon wipes out Judah, the southern kingdom, over a period of about 20 years, kind of like Pac-Man. Babylonia has been eating at Judah, the southern kingdom, 586 They wipe out the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. There are some people still left in the land. Most of them are hauled off into captivity to the empire of the time. Undefeatable Babylon. The big headline, Judah wiped out by Babylon. Over a period of 70 years from the first of Pac-Man's taking of Judah, over a period of 70 years, Israel is in exile in Babylon. The Babylon, the nation that was unbeatable, indestructible. But remember that all nations have their chinks in their armor. The chink in Babylon's armor was that this capital city was built on the Euphrates River. And one night, see if this sounds a bit like Esther, drunken Bacchanal and the Persians the Persians, dam up the Euphrates River. The troops go in that muddy river and make their way up into the, t- the castle that is there, the capital of Babylon. No more Babylon. It's done. Remember again, okay, all, all nations have the chinks in their armor. Okay, so, that, so that's something of the background. But what about the Jews? The Jews were captive in Babylon. What What about the Jews? Well, God, remember, has not forgotten his people. And uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, um, who wrote really talking about these things that were going to come, and the Israelites would say, Lord, why are we wiped out in the north, wiped out in the south? What are we doing in Babylon? God says, I haven't forgotten you. Isaiah 44 and verse 21, remember these things O Jacob and Israel, there you go, the corporate reference, right? For you are my servant, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. Isaiah 49 and verse 14, the Zion, remember the corp, the people of God. They say the Lord has forsaken us, the Lord has forgotten us. And God says in response, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even they may forget, and yet I won't forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, even when they've been cast down by Babylon. Isaiah 49 and verse 23, and this is fascinating. Kings 
shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. You really take the Bible literally? Well, there's a lot of poetic language there. Yeah, we do. Because when Persia defeated Babylon, the leader was a man named Cyrus. It's interesting. Isaiah speaks of Cyrus 150 years before he's even on the scene. Amazing. Okay, prophecy, right? And Isaiah even calls Cyrus my servant, my shepherd. Why? Because once Cyrus defeats Babylon, it's not long before he lets the captive people go back to their own lands. Among that group is Israel. Israel is permitted to go back to its land. It's not only commanded to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by Babylon, but Cyrus makes part of the wealth of the Persian Empire available to Israel to rebuild the temple and even sends back the utensils of the temple that had been used in that drunken bacchanal when Babylon was taken over. Kings shall be your foster fathers. And it's not much of a stretch to think that the one who was closest to Cyrus, a man named Daniel, the whole book in the Bible about him, Daniel, who was second in command to Cyrus, a Jew, may very well have written that edict that caused the Israelites to go back to the land. Has God forgotten his people? No, he hasn't. And then it would be maybe 50, 60 years after that uh, that Persia, again in power, would let, would let the Nehemiah go, the cupbearer to the king, would let him go to the land. The temple had been built, but they had to have walls. They had to have walls to protect it. God said, My wall, your walls are always before me. I will not let you go unprotected. And Nehemiah is sent back again by a Persian leader so that the walls could be built around Jerusalem. And there, there you had that whole the book of the Bible, Ezra. The Israelites go back to the land, and then the second half, Nehemiah comes, and there's a teaching of the people, and uh, the, the, the book of Daniel itself, Daniel was, was in the Persian government and was second to the king. So it's a fascinating, fascinating time period. But right in the middle of return to build the temple and return to build the walls is this guy named Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, who was a king in that time period. And um, what had happened? Well, you read about Vashti. We read that in, that in the chapter that we covered over here. But it is now about, oh, 483 years before the, before the birth of Christ. He's been in power for three years. And he continues a war with the Greeks. And over a four-year period, troops from Persia are sent. It really what was a a magnificent feat of warfare with a built pontoon bridge to get from Persia, which was across the Mediterranean, up to Greece. Invade Greece, Battle of Thermopylae, if you've seen the movie The 300 about the Spartans, you know something about it. The Spartans defend that area 
uh, but because of a man who who basically turns on them, uh, they are defeated, and boy, Ahasuerus is really confident he's going to take over Athens. Remember, he's the invincible one. He takes over Athens. Big mistake. Because the Athenians had a huge navy. They're right in the Mediterranean. And while Ahasuerus had a big navy, it wasn't that big. And he loses two-thirds of it. And loses Greece. Persia will never again be a world power. Again, be careful, folks, when you, when you see empires that are monolithic, that are scary. They're called beasts in many ways. They all have chinks in their armor. Okay? And Persia does as well. Okay, but that, that's the setting. And so Ahasuerus is a pretty defeated guy. Uh, when he and the remaining troops come back from the battle, it is now 479 years before the birth of Christ and let's get back to Ahasuerus, okay? So, chapter 2 and verse 1, after these things, after what you read in chapter 1, after the battles in Greece, after the defeat, when, when Ahasuerus, I mean, he lost a good bit of all of that wealth that we read about in chapter 1. And he'd pretty much forgotten about this thing with Vashti. The anger of King Ahasuerus had abated. He remembered Vashti and what she'd done and what had been decreed against her. Many believe, probably correctly, that she was executed. And then the king's young men have a great idea. Remember, you have a defeated king. And you have a king that doesn't have a queen. And you have a king that even the Greek writer Herodotus said was sensually overstimulated. Now, how do you translate that from the Greek? In other words, in other words, he was he was a Casanova, and doesn't have a queen. And they come up with a bright idea: let's have the biggest beauty pageant you have ever seen. The king's young men who attended unto him said, "Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king." And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Remember, you had 127 provinces that stretch all the way from India to Ethiopia. This is this huge area. Go to all of the provinces and get all of the most beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. And why a king's eunuch? Well, if a man's a eunuch, he's probably not going to have any sexual activity with the, with the virgins that are there. Put him under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Then let their cosmetics be given to them. Ah, oil of Olay. Mmm, wonderful things that they have. And the young, let the young women who please, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And you can imagine this king who is pretty sex-crazed, and he's come back after a war anyway. And so it's kind of understatement. This, this pleased the king. He liked this idea of the beauty pageant to get the most beautiful woman in the empire, and he did so. Even though it was done by others, he was the one that led that. Now, what is this picture? What's a harem? There's actually still little harems in some Muslim homes where, uh, where the, the, the wife or wives, in many cases, and the prepubescent children and others are, and no visitors permitted there. The term harem, again, what is this picture? 
The term harem meant a sacred place, a place of, it would become a place of seclusion, but a sacred place particularly for women. In fact, these are just some of the things. It was was an inviolable place. It was heavily protected. That's where you kept your women from other men. But those women had certain social privileges and economic privileges and political privileges because they were part of the harem of the king. They were, what is this picture? They were subject only to the king. Later they would be secluded from others, although not at this point. They were subject only to the king. And one of their main activities was to always be at the banquet with their husband. She was a showpiece. So, so that was the idea of the harem, particularly at this time. Now here's what's interesting. Usually the queen was the daughter of a very prominent royal figure. In this case, it would have been a prince in Persia. That was, that was, that was I would say, universally the case. You, you picked the queen was one who would help you have favor with your royalty in the kingdom, and royalty competed to have a daughter become the queen of for the king. But God's at work here, folks. And that's not going to be the case with this one who's still trying to keep his empire together. It's not going to be politics that determines things. It's going to be not not politics, but a beauty queen. It's going to be one who attracts him physically and even sexually. Okay. Now, why did I say, what is this picture? One of the themes in Scripture is counterfeits. And you see it particularly at the end of the Old Testament in Esther. You also see it in Ecclesiastes, interestingly, where all of human wisdom ends up being a counterfeit. Those are probably the last, among the last of the books of the Old Testament. And you see it at the end of the book of Revelation, where you have a counterfeit state, you have a counterfeit religion, you have the devil is an antichrist, he's a counterfeit of Christ. And and, and particularly the Old Testament, you're preparing for the real coming in Christ, even as at the end of the New Testament, you're preparing for the coming of Christ. And folks, this is what it's like as we get older. The older you grow in Christ, the more you see how the world apes the things that you only get in Christ. They're counterfeits, they're fake. Now why say this? See how the theme has come up? You have the palace that is defined as with, with detail only rivaled by the detail of the temple and the tabernacle as described in Scripture. Why? That palace is a counterfeit of the temple. Why is Ahasuerus depicted as a man, practically speaking, with all power that you can imagine? Until, of course, Vashti says no. But until then, why is it? He's a counterfeit sovereign. Why references to the wise men here? 
Well, those wise men were politicians, but they're counterfeits of the real wise men that God raises up who walk not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. Why the harem? It's a counterfeit of the bride of Christ, where the Lord Jesus has his chosen bride, he protects them, he gives them great privileges as daughters of the king, and he's delighted to be with them, not as objects, but as the one that he has redeemed by his sovereign grace, not by raw power, and certainly not driven by sexual drives, but by grace and by goodness and kindness. This is the counterfeit, again, of the church itself in this section. So you see the theme of counterfeits at the end is designed to prepare you, saying, Lord, there's got to be something better. There's got to be the real that's coming up. Okay, so, so that's the situation here. As you come back to Ahasuerus, and this guy, again, is a real Casanova, but God's at work. God is at work in back of this. not going to be politics. It's going to be God himself who's going to work for the good of his people. All right, that brings us then in the next place to verses 5 through 7. Let's introduce Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai, there was a Jew, there you go, in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now notice that they give his lineage here a bit. The son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Remember the Pac-Man? Babylon, the Pac-Man, eating up Judah, the southern kingdom. And at the very end of that, Jeconiah the king is even captured and brought back horrible the way he was treated. And in that, Mordecai's family, Mordecai's family is taken into Susa, taken to Persia, and it's very significant. He is, look at the language here, and the Holy Spirit gives all of these words, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Mordecai is in the family of King Saul in the Old Testament. And in a particular way, King Saul really blew it when it came to dealing with a tribe called the Agagites. That's going to come up later. But that's something of the lineage, and there's a purpose in all of this being given here. And it's interesting, Mordecai is a Persian name based on the Persian god Marduk. And uh, probably, probably um, Mordecai, a uh, Persian name, he would have had Persian dress. He probably had a, a certain royal position that was there. He certainly wanted his Jewish background to be kept quiet. And he did have the privilege of being around the court to see things. So he's probably a royal personage that was put there. He disguised his identity. Why? Anti-Semitism, an attitude against the Jews, was pretty strong in Persia. And he was aware of it. Okay, so that's Mordecai. Uh, but that's not all. Finally, we get to the one who is the, the main character, at least humanly speaking, of the book. And that is in verse 6. He'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, 
And then he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, this was his cousin, for she had neither father and mother. Now, she is drop-dead gorgeous. Uh, that's, it's kind of vanilla when you read it in here, but, but when it says she was lovely to look at, she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Her father and mother had died, and Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And notice that there's two names. This is very rare in the script. Daniel, you have two names given, uh, the, the, the Babylonian names and the Egyptian names. Other than that, it's only here you have two names given. Esther is after the Persian goddess Astarte. Astarte was the goddess of love and war. And you'll see how Esther is involved in both love and war. What does the name, what does the name Hadassah mean? Fascinating. If you read of the myrtle in the Old Testament, the myrtle was about a 30-foot-tall evergreen. It was absolutely beautiful. It was statuesque. It had a beautiful fragrance to it, and, and it had flowers that would be on it. And it was just, it was a very alluring thing. It referred, the term actually means the generosity of God, Hadassah, the generosity of God. And, and obviously God's, God overflowed in this woman who was drop-dead gorgeous, and that's the introduction of these two people. But what's the significance of Esther's two names? Esther is going to be a person in two worlds. She's a Jewess, but she's in Persia. And she's got to learn how to work in both worlds. And isn't that what you are as Christians? Our citizenship is in heaven. From there we await a Savior, Christ the Lord. But whether it's the United States or whether it's China or some other nation, you're also the citizen of another nation on earth. What are the challenges of that? How do you function in that? Do you make a lot of mistakes in that? Well, that's more for next week than for now, but you get the idea. Right away, you've got God's people represented by these two folks, and particularly in Esther, she's a citizen of two different kingdoms. Okay, now that brings us in the third place to how God was at work. Behind the scenes, yes, but how was he at work? Remember subflooring? You have the things that we see in life under it, the promises of God, and even under that, God himself and what he does. Or, as we said last week, no coincidences. No incidences. Only coincidences. No incidents. Coincidence. God is at work. He's behind the scenes in everything. And here's what I want you to see in this point. One word. Favor. Favor. Let's look at the text, okay? So, chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, ladies, you can think of your wonderful trips to get your nails done and get your hair done, and the, the greatest perfume places are all in view here, verse 8. So, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, 
Esther also is caught up in this. It's a passive. She was, she was taken, also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. She's now part of the harem. She has no choice. She's caught up in all of this. And the young woman pleased him, Haggai, and won his favor. It's the same word that's used of God's favor toward his own people. And he quickly provided her with, here you go, girls, with cosmetics. Ah, all the cosmetics departments in Rite Aid and CVS and Walgreens, layers and layers, rows and rows of them, whatever they want, they are provided for Esther and for the others. He quickly provided her with those and her portion of food. Because you can't have a thin, emaciated lady, or can't have a dumbo either with it. They had just the right amount of food. This is this perfectly controlled environment for the woman. And with seven chosen young women, because the, the, the concubines also had their own servants from the king's palace, and he advanced her. Why? She found favor. He advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Wow. One year of this, folks. One year of fragrance to the body. One year of the oils to make the skin supple. One year of just the right food so that the person has just the right figure. One year of the treatment of the hair. I mean, this, this, this is, uh, folks, this is the Miss America pageant on steroids for all that comes here. And notice, though, the compromise. Okay. Esther didn't let people know that she was a Jewess, at least not yet. Because Mordecai said, don't do it. Anti-Semitism, whatever. But God's behind the scenes in this. And notice the protection God provides. He's behind the scenes. Normally, you had to be an official in order to be that close to the harem. Mordecai apparently was. And every day, he would walk in the court. He wanted to find out how Esther was a good, protective, virtual father to her. Esther found favor. Esther found favor with Haggai in the harem. And I want you to think with me about this, folks. This, what this means is this. God, and God has an attitude of favor toward all of his people. But this is a special kind of reflection of the favor of God. God has a favor. He blesses his people. God's behind the scenes. He works so that that favor is reflected in those around him. And just to give you some examples, this is a very interesting theme in the scriptures. Here is Joseph, chapter 39 in Genesis, and he's in prison in Egypt. Joseph, a Jew, a slave. But the text says God loved Joseph, and he was also with Joseph. But right after saying God loved Joseph and favored him, it says he found favor by the keeper of the jail. Why was that? God was at work. There was something God was doing in Joseph that made that keeper of the jail 
think very highly of him. And I'll use a very contemporary illustration. One of our Haven members, Darren Emanuel, who is in a correctional facility, one of the reasons why he hasn't been let out yet is because he has found favor in that place as a man who helps out others. Why is that? God behind the scenes. But that's not just Joseph. The Jews are in Egypt. They're captives. They're slaves. They're riffraff. But God worked to give favor to the Jews by the Egyptians. Such favor. What did that mean? I don't know. Maybe they were struck with the fact that the Jews worked hard even though they were slaves or maybe they were struck by the fact that the Jews operated with integrity. I don't know what it was. But they found favor with the Egyptians such that when they left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them treasures to take with them. Ruth, in the book of Ruth, (laughs) happens upon a field because of the back of everything. That field happens to be owned by the one who will be her kinsman redeemer, relative of Naomi. Ruth meets Boaz and says, I have found favor in your sight. Why? Well, she was industrious. She was probably quite pretty. Who knows? But she found favor with Boaz, who would later become her husband. Daniel and his friends are in in. Babylon. They're captives. They're Jews. They're slaves. But they also found favor with the keeper of the jail. Why? I don't know why. This is mysterious, but it's also very real. God works to give favor to his people in the world. And of course, that's exactly what you see here with Esther. That is part of the way God doesn't reveal his will, but the way he unfolds his will in his providence. And we see it all the time among covenant people, okay? Among those who've been influenced by the word of God, they're hard workers, they're honest, they're industrious. I hope you are. And you'll find favor with your boss, and that brings certain blessing. In school, there's an an industry, there's a a drive, there's a desire in young people who are at all influenced by the Word of God, and they will find favor with teachers, with administrators, not always with friends, incidentally. Sometimes the favor doesn't come immediately, but it comes later. And often, it's favor that comes after an awful lot of trial. In churches, what's a call to a man to serve as an elder or a deacon or or a pastor? Well, because of God's blessing, God's smile upon that person, people see that, and, and and a man finds favor in a congregation, in that service. In that service. You see the way God works, folks? And, and this comes out, whatever it is with Esther, she found favor with Haggai in the harem. Proverbs 16 and verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. In Proverbs 3 and verse 3, 
grow, Solomon says, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And that is supremely true in Christ. That's the text that's used to speak of Jesus' upbringing. In Nazareth, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. And in his whole ministry, you see how people that God was shining on, they they gave favor to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he was. Now there was trial, because obviously he went to the cross. Having favor with others doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. The favor often comes after difficulties. People who have persecuted Christians in prison, and I mean really miserable persecution, will break down in tears after time because they see there's something special in this person that they persecuted. Favor, favor, favor. Even at crucifixion, Jesus still finds favor with one, the centurion. Surely this was the Son of God. And after his resurrection and ascension on the day of Pentecost, God is having favor on those who are gathered on that day. And even when it's preached, this Jesus that you crucified, you crucified by lawless hands, you put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. God has favor on many in that group, and they have favor on Christ. They believe in Christ. They repent. They are brokenhearted for what they've done, not unlike the prisoner or the warden who's persecuted the prisoner. Favor, favor. And so it's not coincidental, this whole theme of favor, that after these people favor Jesus, having found favor with God, they are constituted as a church, and they function together, as we do with their, the means of grace and their meals and their communion together. And it's said not only that the Lord added to the church, but he gave favor to the church with all those around them. A powerful dynamic in Scripture. You see it in Esther, and it's going to come up again and again. So, let's bring all of this together. Are you an aroma of Christ to people? That's a wonderful smell. Now, to those who are perishing, it's an aroma of death. But to those in whom God is at work, it's an aroma of life. And you will have favor with them. Not that that's the first thing you're looking for. When favor is shown to you as a reflection of God's favor to you, you better draw attention to God and the need of his favor. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, when you have love one to another. People see that love, and in a world of hate, in a world of... Once you get tired every day of hearing of the murders of people in delis, the raping of people in their own homes, the killing of people at public places, the hatred people have in a polarized... By this shall all people know that you're my disciples when you have love to one another. That favor of God toward you and others, people see it and they reflect it in favor toward you, or, or even in the book of Romans, 
when the Apostle Paul is, is writing about, about the kingdom of God, Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, you grow in that horizontal holiness with others. Peace, regardless of what comes, <laughs> I have peace with God. I even have joy with God because it comes. Whoever thus serves Christ. Do you serve Christ like this? doesn't talk about Sunday school teaching. doesn't talk about preaching. Other places will do that. Serving Christ by righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. What does that mean? People look at you as God's favor is on you, and they say, there's something different about you. There's something different about your home. There's something different about your marriage. You're doing it right, righteousness. You have a, even with the difficulties that come, a peace that's there that I, that I don't get. And you're even joyful. And you find favor with others. And God blesses that. Isn't that, isn't that a great, isn't that a great, great promise, great theme in the scriptures? And you see it with Esther. Now, if you're thinking a little bit, you're saying, wait a minute, oh, oh. If a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, Ahasuerus is going to become at peace with Esther. But I don't think her ways really please the Lord. Because after a year, this Jewess's time comes. And she has to spend a night with this Casanova Ahasuerus, a pagan Gentile sex fiend. That's what it is. Because every night he has the intimacy with these women. What do you do with that? What do you do with this Jewess who commits sin with a pagan king? That's next week. Let's pray. Our Lord, what a glorious... And it is a mystery. We, don't, we see it and we read about it but we don't really understand it. You have your way of causing your favor with your people to be so demonstrated in them that people respond to it with favor. And sometimes that is, after a lot of trial, after a lot of tribulation. And our Lord, we pray that as we go through trial and tribulation, we would still have righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit but Lord, favor. We pray, our God, that you'll grant that to us. Not for our sakes, but because you are the God who gives us that favor. What a glorious dynamic that is in Scripture. When a man's ways please the Lord, he does make his enemies, eventually, to be at peace with him. Let us live with that great subflooring with God himself being behind the scenes. Amen. Amen.